Hello and welcome to episode 35 of the Data Democratization Podcast. I'm Alexandra Ebert, your host and Mostly AI's Chief Trust Officer. And it's great to be back after our summer break. And I can promise you, we have an outstanding lineup of guests for you. The first one today being no one less than the charismatic and also inspiring Pedro Pavon. Pedro is the Global Director for Ads and Monetization, Privacy, as well as Fairness at Matter. And if you join us for our conversation today, you will learn more about the benefits, but also the open research challenges of social media, ranging from fake news to media bubbles to figuring out how this wealth of information we nowadays have at our fingertips is changing how we learn and interact with content. We also talked about AI fairness how to approach it, why there is a tension with privacy, and why also Pedro pointed out that he thinks privacy-enhancing technologies like synthetic data, for example, will be critical to facilitate fairness in algorithms. Of course, we also discussed the state of US privacy laws and why Pedro is less optimistic than some others that we will soon have a federal bill in place. Besides that, he also shared his point of view of the FTC statement that we saw before the summer where they warned data brokers and data owners to not share something that is, quotation marks, anonymous data, when it is in fact not as anonymous as you would like it to be. Lastly, we looked into the bright future for privacy professionals with topics like blockchain and metaverse privacy. And Pedro also shared a few pieces of personal wisdom that I'm sure will not only benefit the privacy pros listening today, but in fact, everyone. So definitely an episode you don't want to miss. Let us dive in. Welcome to the Data Democratization uh, podcast, Pedro. It's wonderful to finally have you on the show. Very great to, to see you here today. Before we jump right into our topics today, could you briefly introduce yourself to our listeners and maybe also share what makes you so passionate about the work you do, particularly in the context of privacy and fairness? Awesome. Well, it sounds good. Thank you for having me, Alexandra. This is a big honor for me. I've followed your podcast pretty closely and, and I'm a big fan. Uh, you know, a little history, a little quick history about myself. I work at Meta. I, I run the monetization privacy policy team. That's like fancy talk for a public policy team focused on supporting all of Meta's uh, revenue generating uh, products and services. Um, so just think ads, think messaging, think uh, metaverse monetization, think e-commerce. These are the types of areas that my team before coming to Meta, I was in-house at a couple other really great companies, Oracle and Salesforce, where I did sort of similar things on legal teams and, um, you know, ran legal teams. And most of the work was oriented around privacy, but also some commercial stuff and some M&A stuff. And uh, before that, I, you know, I was in private practice. Um, uh, my first couple jobs out of law school were actually public service jobs at the Justice Department and at the Department of Energy here in the in the States. And, you know, before all that, I was, uh, I guess I was a baby. I was a baby <laughs> in the 80s. And, um, you know, I kind of just ran around playing with my friends. Um, you know, why I'm passionate about the work I do, I, I think it's two things. One, I think like individual agency and autonomy has a lot to do with your uh, capacity and ability to exclude others from your innermost thoughts and from your um uh, intention sometimes, and just from your general activities. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a strong believer in the like chilling effect of gaze upon behavior and, uh, you know, making sure that people have spaces where they can think authentically, act authentically, behave authentically um, uh, is important and preserving that matters a lot to me. All that said, you know, balancing all of those like sort of human individual interests with like uh, collective interests of like how much society can benefit from uh, information sharing and from um, uh, uh, personalization is, is 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 really important to me as well. I think you know the democratization of information has been one of the most powerful uh, forces for good in the last. 10 to 15 years. I know some of the negative aspects of it get all the headlines, but there are a lot of really positive things that come from people having access to more information, especially when it's 
of high quality and you know of high fidelity meaning it's the truth and it's yeah. it's, it's factual and so like maintaining systems products um and and flows of good high quality connection and information amongst people who don't have access to a lot of resources of besides the internet or a cell phone or whatever uh, is really important to me. And I think it gives voice to a lot of communities that have never had a voice and it gives access to a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't have it to information banks and education and knowledge. And so preserving the free, no cost access to all of that is something that has always been really interesting and important to me and part of why I joined Meta and do the work that I do. So I hope that sort of explains me in a quick nutshell. It definitely does. And I can uh, very well understand now why you're so passionate about your work, because particularly also now thinking about education. Um, when I was in, I think it was uh, starting of, of college, I did a research project on also the impact of um, AI systems that help people access information, translate data and uh, translate languages and so on and so forth. And even in Austria, where I'm based, we have a very high rate of illiterate, pe uh, illiterate people. So so simply having the ability to use voice gives so many more people access to information, access to knowledge. And I'm particularly hopeful when it comes to the advancements that we see in translation from language to language, that this will also help and will help significantly in parts of the world where there simply is not this kind of educational system that we have in many areas of the Western world. So uh, totally definitely so important that this work is happening and that there's this way where you can have access to free information in a much faster way than any kind of state could build it up themselves. Yeah, I agree. And not just, not just faster than any state can build, but also independent of a state's notions about what's the right information to share, right? Like we see what's yeah. happening in Russia and other parts of the world um, where, you know, governments sort of dominate the narrative. And, and, and I'm not sure that is a healthy way to disseminate knowledge, right? Through like propagandized or like, you know, information colored through political agenda. Does that happen everywhere? Of course. Does it happen more so in places where the government has strict control over what you can read, what you can say, and what you can hear? Yes. And the internet is a great tool for uh, combating some of those uh, some of those challenges. And um, it creates a lot of friction and a lot of thrash around the world. I get that. Um, but I think ultimately knowledge can help us prevail. So. I, I agree. But uh, as you mentioned, of course, it's not frictionless. There are challenges. So how is your experience on how to balance or what are the steps to mitigate the risk when it comes to, on the one hand, allowing people to access uh, free information and the information and the truth that is there without governments having a say on what type of information people in a different or part of the world or some parts of the world can access versus what we've heard in the past few years when it comes to fake news, people being in their media bubbles and so on and so forth forth, which also created a new situation for also democracies, because we went from uh, traditional media where everybody was reading the same five newspapers to a much more personalized world where we have things like fake news to deal with, but also um, topics like, okay, you have your own media bubble and only see the content that you interact with. So how to balance these two things or what are things to keep in mind when we look at this friction between the two uh, yeah, topics? What's interesting to me is that like the idea of a bubble And meaning like I'm only reading information that reinforces or reading or accessing information and content that reinforces my worldview or whatever is something new is kind of not real. Not true. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, you know, if if you read if you read The Washington Times or The Washington Post, you're being given information in sort of like different ways tailored to different audiences. That's been in existence since the first newspaper was published sure. or the first was published or whatever. Um, if you only watch cable news, you know, depending on which cable news network you watch, your information is going to be tailored in one way or another. I think what the Internet and particularly social media can do is sort of like personalize that to the individual. Right. Mm -hmm. So where Fox News and MSNBC do it to a community and you choose to go there. You go on social media and it's being tailored to you as a person. It's trigger. It's uh, you know, it's it's designed to like stimulate you and your interests based on your actions and your specific behaviors. And that tends to scare people more. You know, the question I ask is, 
what difference does it make if it's based on my personal information or my the information about a community I'm a member and participant of if the content I'm getting is the same? Like what mm-hmm. we're actually worried about is the like fake tinted tainted content and let's focus on you know thinking through how we vet information so that people understand like the fidelity of what they're consuming right that that's not the same thing as censorship i'm not saying don't let people say whatever they want what i'm suggesting is if you want to say cockamamie things not based on fact flagging that they're the the validity of what you're saying is being challenged for the con- person consuming it is a very powerful signal to send to that person, regardless of how the information is getting tailored and ending up in front of them. Uh, so I think it's really important to think about content first and then personalization second mm-hmm. versus we always think about it, which is it's the personalization itself that's creating the problem. But that's not true. Like, um, you, you know, the, like I, I think it's part of the problem, but I don't think it is these like catalyst for the whole thing i think the content itself is um and so we have to think really carefully about how we improve systems that give people signal about the value about the you know about the quality of the content and the quality and integrity Mm -hmm. of the content they're receiving in ways that is going to be meaningful for them it doesn't trigger them into thinking this is just you know, an agenda to get me to change my mind, because that's another trap when it comes to content, right? Like if I say to you, you're watching, you know, your favorite YouTube guy talk, whatever he's saying, and there's something under it that says, hey, like this, you know, the the truthiness of this content is under, you know, investigation or whatever, that can be perceived as like an agenda driven message itself, right? And so Mm -hmm. figuring out how to give people information and facts about the information they consume so that they can make better choices, turn it off, turn it on, listen to it anyway, listen to it differently, uh, receive mm-hmm, it differently, mm-hmm. um, I think is an important uh, undertaking. And I know lots of companies are thinking about how to make this happen. At the same time, though, like better understanding the effects of personalized content and ads on human individual humans is research that has to continue and work that must continue to be done because we need, I don't think the world fully understands how like individual personalization is affecting in people mm-hmm. really. And so like continuing to investigate that is really important and make sure we're, we're not, you know, uh, overlooking uh, something or not closely. Really, really important. Exactly. Understood, understood. Well, absolutely makes sense. And I see that you point out that fake news or the quality of the content definitely is the the bigger uh, topic to address. Uh, One other argument I've heard, which has a kind of different point of view, I once had Paul Nemitz on the show. Uh, He's um, an advisor to the European Commission. Prior to that, he was kind of the godfather to GDPR, who kind of brought us the level of of privacy protection and and regulation we have in the European, European Union that way. And he wrote an excellent book that I can only recommend to everyone everyone. The problem is it's currently only available in German and I think we're still waiting on the English um, version of it where he lays out the impact of uh, modern uh, communication, internet communication technologies on democracy and many other parts um, of, of societal living and I think his argument was that he's concerned about this high degree of personalization for that reason that people kind of lose the um, sight and the oversight of the information that's available on the spectrum as a whole. And therefore, when they have arguments from different, uh, or people have arguments which come from uh, opposing points of view, they really lose this kind of capability to understand, okay, where's this other person coming from? They must be nuts because what they're referencing is something I've never seen or heard, even on a peripheral uh, um way when looking at the news I receive. And so he was like, okay, it would be great to have more um, um, content that's overlapping so that people could better um, discuss things because he says that this is kind of the uh, pre-requirement uh, for democracy, uh, democratic reasoning uh, that people have this kind of baseline of, of where they're discussing. And another argument I've heard that was quite interesting from actually a researcher that looked at privacy over the past hundreds of years and lots of her work is happening by analyzing 
in the uh, early or not not too early days, newspaper texts, um, books, and so on and so forth, and in the very early days, some uh, scripts you have from churches and so on and so forth. So it was publicly available information. And the point she made was that with this kind of high degree of personalization plus um, the lost ability to have. 10 newspapers that you have to monitor and, for example, archive as a national library, you as a researcher kind of lose access to all the information that's, that people are exposed to, which in, a, in the future will make it potentially challenging for researchers to do what you just pointed out, uh, researching how personalization affects individuals and how different information uh, streams infect, uh, affect behavior and so on and so forth, because it's so highly personalized that it's not publicly available what type of information I saw in my social media stream. So these were some of the other um, um, points of views I've heard on that, but I'm not the deep expert on the topic, so... Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I think like, first of all, I don't necessarily understand uh, that last point well, which is like, you know, it's going to be hard to understand or research how people are being swayed by the information they're given because we don't have access to the information. I think that's almost always been true. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I get the like, you can't see my timeline issue, but you also, you know, 150 years ago, you weren't at the, you know, at the saloon where I was getting my information at the table like you know and so we look to newspapers as primary sources sort of under the assumption that like i don't know 150 years ago most people were reading newspapers i just don't think that's true i think people have always gotten their information sort of through these informal pathways now one of which is like social media and feeds on the internet and tiktok and instagram and whatever um it's just a new venue with a lot more information. And that's what I think we have to look at, which is how does this access to much more content than ever affect people? Mm -hmm. Because that we do have a lot of data around. And I, you know, we need to understand better because that is what is certainly universally happening to everyone, which is you have more access to content at your fingertips than any human being before you. Uh, even 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 100 years ago, definitely, 200 years ago, certainly, 500 years ago, def, you know, uh, obviously, right? And so you have access to all of this information. How does that reshape your brain? How does that reshape your ability to be critical? How does that reshape your ability to, you know, be skeptical? Like, these are really important questions that we don't understand. What I know for sure is there's no going back. Like, I look mm -hmm. at the generations of people coming behind me, like, uh, you know, I, I think I'm like an old millennial, right? Um, <laughs> when I look at Gen Z and Gen Y and all the folks coming after, uh, and, and I listen and watch them, they learn differently than I do. Like, I learn mostly from books and long-form reading. That's how I learn. I read a long magazine article. I read a book about a topic I'm interested in. I watch a documentary. This is not how a 15-year-old brain is being formed. They learn in, you know, 30-second, two-minute intervals, and for me, I look at that and I go, how could they be absorbing anything? But mm -hmm. the superpower they have that I don't have is an ability to toggle that is so incredible that my brain will never be able to do. For example, they can go through 15 independent TikToks in 10 minutes and absorb interesting nuggets of content and memory from that sort of like exercise that I can't physically, I don't think my brain is wired to do. <laughs> Um, and so how they're going to spread knowledge, information, and, uh, con and, 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 and interpret content is just going to be different. Trying to study it from the perspective of how I learned, I think, is a, follow is, is a, is a bad move. <laughs> I think it's a mistake. And so I, I think there's like different questions to be asked. How does this new access to information affect people who learned to learn the old way? And how does it affect people who are learning to learn in this new way and what are the differences and what are the risks for each? I mm -hmm. bet somebody way smarter than me is thinking about this already. I'm sure hundreds of scientists are, and I'm really interested in that research coming to light because that's where I think a lot of the, you know, lit light bulbs are going to come from in understanding how like this proliferation of content and personalization is affecting people. And I think what we're going to learn is that it affects different types of people in different ways. Definitely and there is the bullet. There's not going to be any like magical wand that you're going to be able to wave to make the world a perfect, fair, and objective place. But that's never been true anyway. 
That's true. That's true. I'm, I can only second that. I'm also beyond excited to see what research will tell us in, let's say, 10 years so about excited. what they found out on that. And I think the point you just made on also these different uh, age groups and population groups, when you say, okay, millennials or uh, even younger generations versus those which haven't interacted with technology for the majority of their life. And I think here the point that you made earlier in our conversation of also flagging content and if there's... Um, um, some reason to do that, tell people, hey, with this uh, source, you might maybe want to be more critical and and more skeptical versus this is one of your trusted sources. Um, you maybe don't have to be that critical. I think this will be a very important part because if we look into just the patterns that we see nowadays with focus spans going down and people switching from content to content to content, I think just by the speed of it and everybody being overwhelmed with uh, the flow of information, critical thinking, and also questioning the source of where the content is coming from potentially is something that isn't done every time to to 100% and assisting here and aiding uh, people here, particularly from older generations is something that I think uh, can can help to improve here. Yeah, and some of the fears and some of the concerns, they're like they're uh, they're being applied to a new surface, but they're not new. You know, like mm. when when we transitioned to radio in the early part of the 20th century, I guess I don't, I don't know the exact dates, but I think that's right. You know, you can just Google like and read about all of the like newspaper articles about how radio was going to destroy reading and change people's ability to absorb information and like affect school children negatively and whatever. Then TV comes along and it's even worse. All, I think you're old yeah. enough to know all the hysteria around like TV brainwashing kids and all this stuff. And then video games came along and video games were going to destroy all of the children's brains and turn them into violent zombies that were going to you know do all these things. And then the internet came along and then it was the internet that was going to destroy my generation and my, you know, my contemporaries. And now it, social media is going to destroy. The reality is human beings are super resilient and we adapt and we learn and we, and we become smarter for going through a hazard period of some risk where we're still trying to figure out how things are affecting us. And I think that's where we are right now on social media. I don't love panic button driven conclusory discussions. I think that they're short-sighted and wrong. And that's my personal opinion. I think what is much more productive is to approach it from this perspective. Like entire generations of people are born into the social media and internet age now. And we're not that far removed from all generations being alive, being sort of brought up in that in, in a world where the internet has always existed. And when we get to that point, civilization is gonna be different. That is called progress. Now, with that being said, we should be vigilant and mindful of new risks that new technologies present and that new ways of learning and absorbing information create. Um, but like fear mongering and like over the top mm -hmm. you know, apocalyptic stuff, I just think history tells us that that's not the way things work. Absolutely. And I think uh, also from my personal experience, I work a lot with regulators, particularly on the European Union level. And we've seen it in the past few years that everybody was afraid of artificial intelligence and that is going, right. like uh, pointed out in Terminator, take over the world, take all our jobs and so on and so forth. And this panic and hysteria is actually taking the focus and attention away of those topics that need to be addressed today, like, for example, fairness or something like that. And exactly. now also with regulators, some of them haven't even... Uh, grasped uh, artificial intelligence others have but they now moved on and say okay the future of let's say blockchain the metaverse neurotechnology and so on and so forth this is the new bad evil and we have to increase uh, panic and so on and so forth and that's absolutely the wrong approach because as you just pointed out we've had all these discussions uh, with all the new technologies that we've introduced even only during the past century and as we've seen uh Radio didn't uh, kill our ability to read. TV didn't uh, significantly alter us as human beings. So looking at what needs to be addressed and addressing that in a more rational and um, a calm manner as opposed to uh, having mass panic and uh, dystopian scenarios about AI taking over the world, anything else taking over the world, I think is also the better way to go. Agreed. 
Perfect. I absolutely wanted to talk about fairness with you, AI fairness with you, particularly in the context of recommender systems and the ad uh, advertising ecosystem, because this is something uh, you, you mentioned or you talked about at an IPP panel earlier this year, and it's something we haven't yet discussed that closely on the podcast. So fairness is something that's, uh, or AI fairness is something that's top of mind for our data democratization podcast listeners. But what's particularly about fairness when it comes to recommender systems and the ad ecosystem. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, look, I think when you have a, a, a computer making decisions that affect y y critical components of your life, whether that be your health or your economic uh, situation uh, or your liberty, uh, scrutinizing those systems is really important, right? And some of, it's, it's interesting to me that some of like the most noteworthy early adoptions of AI actually came in like really critical like human rights oriented spaces like think like the the, the common story told in in one of the great books on this topic called uh, the book's title is uh weapons of math destruction mm -hmm. and the author there talks a lot about like um algorithmic uh decision making around uh like people's freedom, like parole boards um, and people's ability to be released from jail and how the algorithm was found to be discriminatory. But like all these jurisdictions adopted it just for efficiency and for cost and for all the, you know, in the in the gaze of removing human prejudice, just inserted technological prejudice, which was just a reflection of the human prejudice that was built into the system because people made the system, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, I, I think... Fairness is still a concept we're working out in the context of computational decision-making. That said, fairness is much more complicated than what it sounds like on the surface, which means, you know, are we being mindful of like how the outcomes are affecting all the people uh, in that the algorithms affecting, right? But I think like a double click on the discussion of fairness is goes something like this. Let's say an algorithm makes decisions that affect community uh, a community of people uh, fairly 99% of the time, okay? 99% of the time, the algorithm is, is objectively behaving fairly. But 1%, it's behaving unfairly. Like, does that make it an unfair algorithm? Or does it, does it does that mean that we need to blow it up and start from scratch? I think the answer there is it depends, right? On the use case, sure. It depends. Like, what's the algorithm deciding and what's that impact on the entire population but specifically what's the impact on that one percent of the population who is being either put at risk or being treated not as fair as the rest of the population or just receiving different outcomes systematically because of that algorithm because like for example like if if it's a matter of do i get a coupon discount at mcdonald's and 99.99 percent .99 of the time it It's fu acting fundamentally fairly, but 1% of the time it's excluding a group of people unfairly for whatever mathematical reason I don't understand, right? That sucks, and we need to fix that. I don't think we need to shut the algorithm down in order to fix that, right? I think mm -hmm. we try to iterate on it and make it better and figure out what's causing this like unfair outcome. But if it's an outcome, and this, does, this is a hypothetical, but if the algorithm is making a life and death decision, okay, and disproportionately impacting a very small population of the user base, then we got to stop using it until we fix it, right? Like, we, we, you can't use it. A 1% death rate is unacceptable. Absolutely. But a 1% failure rate on something of less consequence might be acceptable, and we have to bring in a lot of smart people to decide whether it is, to continue to use the algorithm while we figure out what's causing this discrepancy. And so, like, there are a lot of ethical exercises that go into deciding, deciding like, how we're going to approach fairness in algorithmic decision-making. And I think one of them is like how do we develop criteria for deciding like absolute baselines for uh, um, like stopping adoption? I don't know. I'm not an ethicist. Um, I think a lot of privacy professionals talk about this like they are the experts, and I don't think we are. I think mm -hmm. we need to turn to philosophers and, and ethicists and social scientists and um, you know psychologists and people who understand human beings in ways that privacy people do not to figure out what the answers there are. Unfortunately, I think we're not doing a good job at that as a, mm -hmm. and I, and when I say we, I mean the privacy profession at large, yeah, sure. not well suited to make these types of 
um, societal and civilization oriented <laughs> decisions. It must be a much broader group of people that helps us Agreed. think. Agreed. In the context of fairness, communities identified as being treated unfairly should have disproportionately loud voices in those discussions. So if an algorithm is being racist against a particular ethnic group, that ethnic group should have a very amplified voice in deciding how we calibrate whatever technology is creating the disparate impact up to and including whether we need to turn it off, right? And, you know, in most cases in the scenario I just gave, probably sounds like it needs to be turned off, but that might not always be the case. I think mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. understanding that and making sure we have an inclusive conversation about impact effect is important. All of this is great. If you know what the disparate impact is, if you know what the unfair outcome is, I think the more opaque and difficult challenge, and it's somewhat more technical, is identifying the disparate impact, identifying the unfair outcome. If we don't know that it's there, we can't fix it. And he, there's a tension with privacy there, I think, because sometimes being able to see if you know, a particular group of people is being disproportionately negatively affected by something is the need to identify who they are. Absolutely. And or and, at least some of the characteristics. Oh, yeah, exactly. Um, I, I, or identifying the characteristics that make them who they are. And in order to do that, you've got to learn something about them. And you've got to save that information. And then you've got to use that information. And, you know, if, if I, this is a random hypothetical, but if Google or Amazon or Meta said, hey, like, we want to make sure that, um, you know, communities of color aren't being disproportionately affected negatively by X algorithm that does Y thing. We need to go ask people what, eth you know, what ethnic group they're a part of in order to study this as far as part of how the product works. The backlash would be immediate. We know it. Like we absolutely, know it. absolutely. So, You're speaking to my heart here with everything you just pointed out. Yeah, the backlash would be immediate. So, so maybe the answer is that there's a better way to do this. And we need to think about that. And that doesn't require us to know who groups are. I am not scientifically sophisticated enough to know whether that path exists, but I it actually do does. Yeah, yeah, and 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 if it does, then let's go figure out how to make that happen. Um, yeah. What is most important, though, is that we leave no stone unturned in the fairness discussion to make sure that um, you know we aren't setting up entire communities of people up for failure because of in the name of efficiency or automation. Because I don't think that that's a that's a good path for anybody. Definitely, definitely. So, so many points in there when what you just mentioned, Peter, that I want to uh, follow up on. So I'm also with you that I think privacy professionals have a role to play in the fairness discussions and the responsible AI discussions, but I'm also not a fan of the positioning that we see at some um, privacy institutions of, okay, privacy professionals are the one who, ones who should own responsible AI and fairness, because as you just pointed out, they're not trained philosophers, ethicists, and so on and so forth. And therefore, I think they bring important skills to the table. Table, but uh, it should be a much bigger, much more inclusive effort within organizations Great. where you have people from all the different departments, backgrounds, and so yeah. on and so forth. Um, also, what you said about having a disproportionately large uh, or loud voices for uh, particularly the minorities that are badly affected by, by algorithms or any decision-making systems, I think is also an important thing to consider because it's still such an early phase that nobody in the world has all the answers to do it. So I think one important thing to keep in mind is how can we keep this communication channel open and how could we have um, uh, capabilities in our products or features in our products that allow uh, users to uh, communicate, to mention, to point out uh, that there is something unfair happening. For example, I'm thinking here of a conversation I once had with an LGBTQ researcher who was focusing on AI fairness and one issue he pointed out was that, for example, with Amazon Alexa in the United States, there are sometimes um, issues for the LGBTQ community because they are misgendered or their friends are misgendered yeah. by the device. And there's actually no way to uh, change that or to even let uh, Amazon know, hey, we are uh, unhappy about it. Could you please add a tiny feature that would allow us to set uh, different pronouns or something like that? So just having maybe some simple tweaks and additions to products that would allow particularly those minorities to have the loud voice. I think is something particularly helpful in the early days where we're still at when it comes to AI fairness. And 
Then, since you also mentioned this tension between privacy and fairness, absolutely. I actually was asked by the European Parliament earlier, or actually end of last year, to advise them on responsible AI aspects of the upcoming AI Act. And there it was also this tension between, of course, you want to protect privacy. You want to protect the most sensitive information of people about their ethnicity, about their gender, about their sexual orientation. But on the other hand, you want to have algorithms that don't discriminate against that. And state of the art is still that you need to know um, how what these characteristics are about different user groups to actually develop an algorithm that is truly colorblind, genderblind, and so on and so forth. But with current laws, actually GDPR and various anti-discrimination laws, both in Europe, in the UK, and also in the US, Oftentimes, AI fairness practitioners are prohibited from accessing the sensitive attributes. So they have to operate in the blind and don't even know whether their algorithms are biased. There was also a survey done by, I think, Microsoft Research two years ago that identified this as the biggest challenge. Oftentimes, they don't know whether they are biased or not. And this is something that I'm so happy that we, with our synthetic data, mostly I can help with because it allows organizations to have representative yet completely anonymous information, artificial information about the their customers or their training data, which can also have these sensitive attributes in there. And this helps when you train the algorithm to set the algorithm in a way that it doesn't take gender or some other aspects into account. Actually, if this is something of interest for the people listening today, our um, one of our uh, previous episodes, two episodes ago, was about Humana, the US health insurance, and their use of fair synthetic data, where they use synthetic data not only to access these attributes, but in that case, to make the data sets fairer and improve historic biases and have something that they can develop their models on and make sure that, in that case, healthcare resource allocation is um, fair um, across the different spectrum of individuals. So there are technologies out there, synthetic data data by far is not the only one. Luckily, there's so much work happening and therefore I'm positive that we will in the future be in a um, position to say, okay, privacy shouldn't be uh, in tension with fairness, but you can actually reconcile both. I think you're right. I think privacy enhancing technologies are going to be a critical component of balancing privacy and fairness towards Fairness, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And what I I mean by that is towards the pursuit of fairness, not at the expense of privacy, right? I don't know that we're fully there yet and we've got a ways to go, but I'm really optimistic about a lot of the emerging technologies in the pets space. Um, You just mentioned one synthetic data, but there's a ton um, and their application in the context of determining, measuring and improving fairness. I think they are a going to be an essential piece of the toolkit to getting this right. Um, I don't think they solve everything. And I think there's always going to be some tension, Um, but they definitely work to improve things. And we should pursue those just as aggressively as we're pursuing fairness outcomes, because I think they're going to be a critical component to us. Fair, more inclusive, uh, you know, technology surface uh, for the world to interact with. I see. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's also the point to, to keep in mind that, Privacy is a little bit more straightforward than fairness, because if you talk about fairness, you will ask seven people and you will have 10 different opinions on on what is fair or not. With privacy or when we look into data, uh, there's not a kind of spectrum, okay, is this anonymous or not? It either is anonymous or it isn't. And this is also something that's a little bit easier to address, which actually brings me to um, uh, another point that I wanted to discuss with you, which is kind of the state of US privacy laws. We've seen... um, Uh, discussions about a bill that would be on a federal level. We've also had two weeks ago or... I'm not sure when exactly we're going to publish this episode. So I'll say at the beginning or mid of July 2022, we had the statement from the Federal Trade Commission about uh, the sensitivity of location data, health data, and that they really want to um, issue a warning on uh, bad practices of saying something is anonymous and it's not anonymous and then selling this data to data brokers and so on and so forth. What's your perception since you're based in the United States of the current state of US privacy? Where do you think we'll be going in the next few months? Yeah, I think we're definitely headed towards um, more strict regulation. That that that's that's the trajectory of the world. But I think spe- in, in the U.S. specifically right now at this moment in time, there are a cornucopia of federal bills, both like an omnibus approach where it would be like one federal unifying privacy bill for the whole United States, and some piecemeal 
uh, privacy bills, particularly focused around children and, and other kind of like discrete topic areas that are all floating around in the U.S. Congress and starting to get more traction than I've seen ever, right? Mm-hmm. Which, which is really good. And there's a lot of a lot of my colleagues here in the states are optimistic about the prospects of a federal privacy law. I still think that we're not as close as other people feel we are to a federal privacy bill. I'm hopeful. I, I, my opinion is we need one and we should have one. And, and as long as it applies, uh, sort of equally to companies and organizations, so that doesn't create like unfair competitive advantages for company X over company Y, uh, and it, and is applied evenly. I think it's a good thing. Okay. The mm-hmm. idea federal privacy bill or federal privacy law. I do see like two sort of like kind of, I don't even know what the right word is, but like touchstone principle areas of debate that could make it really hard for a bill to pass. One is this idea of preemption and preemption is fancy American legal talk for, you know, will the federal bill supersede all state laws and, mm-hmm. and govern? Um, that is a very hot topic in the States that is, debated vigorously and i'm not sure we've found a political middle ground on that issue yet and i think the other one is private right of action right Mm -hmm. a highly contested issue where uh like the political parties in the states are very different parts are i have taken very different stances um that i think will make it difficult for a meaningful bill to pass Absolutely. Maybe quickly for our listeners, can you explain private right of action since you're the lawyer and I wouldn't use the court? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like not turning this into like a law class, you know, simply speaking, it's the ability for private citizens to sue under the law for violations of the law by organizations and companies. So, Pedro, I believe, you know, my rights under the, the federal privacy law were violated and in the context of which they were violated in, I can sue as an individual or as a class, meaning like a class mm-hmm. action. Yeah, uh, which then would be uh, multi-million dollars in fines if yeah, yeah, enough yeah, people yeah. would come together. So this is a thing. Exactly. So private right of action. Um, I, I think that is a highly contested issue. And so the combination of those two make it difficult for me to be as optimistic as some of my colleagues are, which is like, you know, the possibility for a, a law being passed by spring. I'm not that optimistic. What I will say is the debate is like, it's possible. I I think these Mm -hmm. things are not unachievable. I I, I think the art of compromise is something that in like the U.S. Congress um, is not as well practiced as it might have been historically. Mm -hmm. Passing a federal privacy bill, I think, has uh, cachet on both sides of the political aisle in the United States. And so I'm hopeful, you know. but I'm not foolishly hopeful, I, I guess. Yeah, yeah. it still will take some time. Would, you know, I, and, and if you ask me, do I think whether it would be a good thing or not? I, I absolutely think it would. Yeah, be. yeah, definitely. It you would make like, life so much oh, easier yeah. for... Look at, look at what GDPR has sort of done for Europe and like unifying the way the the member states think about privacy. Has it made it perfectly clean and simple? No, there's debate amongst DPAs and like there's all these discussions about whether enforcement is... Uh, being pursued uh, aggressively enough. And, you know, these are all debates that come no matter what happens um, if you pass a unifying law. But I'd rather be having the debates Europe is having now than the debate about whether or not we need a law in the first place. Like, I think we need to just figure out how to make that happen. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Although I must admit that when I saw all this... um Buzz going around about the uh, Supreme Court ruling when it comes to reproductive health and the connection with privacy and so on and so forth, that this potentially would be something that would turn the dial and get us a little bit uh, faster to a federal privacy law. But let's see when we will eventually have it, when we will eventually have it. Also, from your perspective, since uh, the FTC is kind of the main uh, enforcer when it comes to to uh, privacy on on certain aspects, how impactful do you think are statements like what we just saw like a few weeks ago from the FTC when it came to okay a w- clear warning for data brokers and the pure anonymization practices that still are in place in so many organizations, which research has shown over and over again are simply just not uh, uh, anonymous but still personal data. Do you think this will dramatically change how business is done at many organizations or do you think it's just loud words and uh, not much behind it 
I think the FTC is definitely signaling its intention about what it's going to find acceptable or not and where it's going to go with regard to enforcement. And I commented about this on LinkedIn when I saw the FTC statement on like anonymous and anonymization and sensitive data. And, and, and here's my reaction to it. And this is my individual personal reaction to it. Um, uh, you know, I think it's good that the FTC is raising the volume on like deceptive practices around, pe- you know, companies and organizations making claims about the, you know, the characteristics of the data that they collect and use. Um, I do think it's important to be a little bit more nuanced than what I saw, um, because it is not true that a company who, or an organization that implements a anonymization technique or technology that they actually have vetted, done a, a, a rigorous process of, of incorporating and have good faith confidence that it is meeting the threshold that they are articulating it is meeting, but later learn that either something changed in the way technology works, meaning somebody was able to create a technology that undermines what they implemented, mm-hmm. or that they made an unknown error uh, or mistake that was not unreasonable, um, should be treated the same way a company who just lies uh, yeah, sure. what, what should be treated. I just don't think that's the right approach. And so I would have loved to have seen a little bit more nuance there where it's like, we will appreciate good faith efforts. And we do take into account like the rigor under which you make the claims that you make, uh, right. Uh, and determining, however, uh, you know, while still stating that, like, if you say something's anonymous and it turns out that it's not, we're going to investigate and kind of pursue enforcement. Like, I think that's fine. I, I think exp- Explaining the proportionality of the enforcement and punishment based on the actions of the organization or company and whether or not they were in good faith would have been nice to see in there. I didn't see that there. So I think it was a little bit too sledgehammery. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I understand why the FTC would do it. I really do. And, yeah. and understanding the way the FTC usually operates, they go after egregious actors first. And, and I think egregious actors, what I'm just saying, won't apply to them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. And I mean, of course, more nuance would have been uh, desirable, but I also see so many, we work a lot with financial institutions, insurance organizations, which have their traditional anonymization practices like masking and so on in place, but they I've rarely encountered any organization that has then very uh, vigilant vetting of the anonymization that was performed to really see if that's, um, that's uh, fulfilling the anonymization requirements under GDPR and the other laws. And I think That's one thing that I hope is going to change. But one other thing that I'm also hopeful is I've actually also worked a lot with uh, computational privacy researchers and Yves Alexandre de Montjuillet is one of the leaders in in that space who published quite a few papers which made it to the New York Times, Washington Post, The Guardian and so on and so forth, stating and, and warning about the pitfalls of traditional anonymization. And one interesting thing he pointed out is that particularly with traditional anonymization technologies where you stick to the original data but just distort some parts of it, delete some parts of it. It's terribly hard, if not impossible, to measure from a mathematical point of view how high your risk of re-identification is. And this is why he's also one of the advocates for synthetic data and other emerging technologies where you can much easier measure this because you have just a smaller group of privacy risks that need to be addressed. So this is, I think, one thing. And then, of course, besides more nuance from regulators, also guidance from regulators, what they are expecting to see, I think is something that we're lacking both under European Union as well as in the United States, and which I hope is going to come to make, as I already mentioned, lives easier for everybody. Agreed. Perfect, perfect. We are running out of time, Pedro. So uh, actually, I was curious about um, your um, thoughts on how the role of privacy professionals is going to evolve in the future. And if you can maybe also have some tips for our listeners on how they should prepare to be fit for metaverse privacy, blockchain privacy, and everything else that's going to come. Yeah, look, it's a, it's. I've been at this for a long time, and it's definitely the most exciting time to be a privacy practitioner ever, and probably that will be true in the future. Meaning, we are at that like pivotal point of <laughs> turning our profession into what it's going to be. You know, we are the impressionist artists in the late 1800s, right? And creating impressionism, we're doing that for privacy right now. So it's a super exciting time. I think some of the things we talked about earlier are critical, which is you know approaching our profession with humility and understanding that we are not the ones who are going to have all the answers and either need to develop the expertise and the disciplines to speak intelligently and, um, 
and expertly about areas that are like privacy adjacent is going to be something important going forward. Whether that means we bring other disciplines into the profession, which is what I'm hopeful for, or that we collaborate more closely with other disciplines. Um, I don't know, but I, I think like expanding the idea of what a privacy professional is, is something that's underway right now. And I hope we do it carefully and thoughtfully so that we don't water down what it means mm -hmm. if to expand it. I just don't want us to turn into like pseudo profession, which would not be a good outcome. And, you know, there are a lot of new interesting surfaces for people to practice. Uh, the metaverse is an up and coming and emerging place and concept. And so if I was graduated from law school right now and interested in privacy, I'd be really excited about what my job's going to look like in 10 years if I'm interested in the metaverse privacy issues that for sure are going to arise. There are some folks working on it now, but like I think in 10 mm -hmm. years, it's going to be really exciting, really, really exciting. Uh, I'll probably be too old by then to be interesting, but like these, like the next crop of folks, I think is going to have a lot of <laughs> issues to work on. So I think the future is bright for our profession. Like the top tip I would give is, be, top tips I'd give anyone either coming into the profession or trying to make a name for themselves would be be humble, listen to your colleagues, listen to opposing views carefully, and be inclusive in your work, meaning bring other points of view in, bring other ideas in. No ideas are bad. Um, and if there's a group, a person, or someone in the meeting, on the design team, in the privacy team, wherever, that isn't being heard from or being uh, having a chance to make their point or provide their perspective, enable that. Enable it, enable, enable, enable. It's much more important to listen than to talk. Absolutely. So I can only applaud you to that, Pedro. I think that's so important regardless whether you're in the privacy profession or any, any other profession. Agreed. But as you just pointed out, uh, exciting times ahead for privacy. So thank you so much for taking the time today. It was a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And I can only recommend to our listeners to also visit your podcast, the Data Protection Breakfast Club. I would love to also join you there at one point in time, but I definitely enjoy the conversations you and your partner have there with the exciting guests you have. So another resource where they can uh, follow you and hear more from your wisdom on privacy and fairness. So thank you, Pedro. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. This was super fun. Wow. What a great conversation. And I think you now see that I didn't overpromise with describing Pedro Bose as super charismatic, super humorful and inspiring to talk to. If you want to learn more from him, follow him on his Twitter, on LinkedIn, and absolutely also check out his podcast, which is called Data Protection Breakfast Club. For our podcast, if you have any questions or comments for today's episodes, as always, uh, reach out to us on LinkedIn. Write us a short email at podcast at mostly.ai. We will be back with our next episode in two weeks. So tune in then and have a great time until then. Hear you in two weeks. <laughs>